So we're, we would normally start going back into 1 Samuel about this point. So we've been going to 1 Samuel most of the year. Uh, we took a little break before Easter to talk about uh, what does it look like for us to be a blessing. Um, had Easter, Palm Sunday, and now we want to take two weeks and focus on what does it look like for us to be a community of people living in this particular cultural moment. And the genesis of this uh, was actually, I don't know, maybe it, the genesis actually was a couple weeks ago, but I think the, the important part is right before we did a church plant about five years ago, this community of people that was here, right, there's a small subset of people, made some core commitments to one another as we were starting the church plant. First, they committed to one another. We had the elders upstairs up there, and the church was down here, and there was like a call and response thing, and the, the folks that were here decided they were going to set aside their preferences in the church to see God do a new work. And they were offered this analogy of a bulldozer, which you've probably heard me share if you've been around, but if you're new, I think it's an important story in the history of our church. They were basically told, imagine this church is a field and God is in a bulldozer in one corner and you guys, the church, are in the other corner and you have the keys. And God is reaching out his hand and saying, hey, will you walk across the field and hand the keys to the bulldozer to God and let him do what he wants with the field? Now, on one level, in theory, you're like, Oh, that's kind of a cool analogy. But on the ground, if you've been in this place 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, that's scary. That's giving over all your preferences of what is going to happen. And yet this faithful group of people said, okay, we're going to walk across the field and we're going to give God control. We're going to set aside our preferences. Now, the other thing they committed to was not just setting aside their preferences, but if their desires weren't met, they weren't going to like, huddle outside and start gossiping about the horrible decisions the pastor or the elders were making. They weren't going to form little alliances, you know, to get their agenda through. And that sounds ridiculous, but who has been in a church where that has happened? Right? They were saying, we're going to set aside our preferences and we are not going to cause division when our preferences aren't met. We're going we're to bless this community, and if we need to, we're going to leave gracefully. Those are the commitments they made a little over five years ago, right before we started this church plant. And as five years was coming up, I was thinking, you know, I wonder if there's like common commitments we could make of what it looks like for us to be a body together that makes sense in this cultural moment in the season of our church. Now, if you're here for the first time, welcome. You'll actually get a window into stuff we really care about. If you're here for the hundredth time, hopefully nothing I say is going to surprise you. My hope is it will clarify things you've already heard and say, okay, yeah, these are really important to us. But the thing about the four things I'm going to share about you is they're all going to strike at or challenge assumptions in our culture. So they're going to be a little bit like they might actually do something in you as I talk about them. And that's the point. The point is our culture forms us. And we want to be a people as the church that are different 
than our culture. I'm going to read the four of them to you, and then I'm going to cover two this week. I'm going to cover the first two this week, and then the next two next week. So you kind of get like two sermons in one each week. So hold on to your pews. All right. <laughs> it's my wife. She always has this very distinct laugh. I love it. Uh, <laughs> all right. In a culture that worships individual preference, we want to live open-handed before Jesus. In a culture that reacts to and defends against the other, we want to listen to understand and welcome. In a culture that settles for distraction and busyness, we want to make space for and prioritize our internal life with God. In a culture that confuses with fragmented truth claims, we want to come under the authority of Scripture and the leading of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to focus on the first two today, and we'll do the next two next week. So, here we go. In a culture that worships individual preference, we want to be a people that live open-handed to Jesus. Now, I want to start with this because I, I think a little bit of historical context is actually helpful here because I think most of us just assume that the individual is like the meaning maker of the world. Uh, that's just the culture we live in. That's the air we breathe. For some of you know, right, I, I did a, a lot of my doctoral work on like Western secularism uh, and this philosopher named Charles Taylor, and he wrote a book called uh, A Secular Age. And he talks actually a lot about what has actually really changed in the West over the last 500 years. He specifically talks about, like, if you, let's say, went to a village outside of Paris 500 years ago, and that person decided to go on a walk in the woods, right? So this is courtesy of Mike Oswald. Thank you very much. He, he did that. If you need a painting in your house, Mike is available. Uh, <laughs> you are awesome. Um, if you went on a walk in the woods 500 years ago and you were sort of out and about, right, this was always a risky adventure, right? Because you were sort of look around and there could be something behind this tree, a spirit, right? There's dangerous forces in the world. 500 years ago, right, every walk in the wood was a sylvan adventure, Right, Because when you went on a walk in the wood, meaning and significance were also outside of you, if not primarily so. So belief in God wasn't like an option on your plate. Belief in God was central to your safety in the world. The world was a dangerous place, full of spirits, full of meaning. Right? God was not like, hey, do you prefer broccoli or pizza at the buffet? God was necessary for your survival in a dangerous world. And likewise, right, unbelief wasn't just like a personal choice. It wasn't just like, oh, that's my personal belief. 
doesn't affect anyone else, that's just me. In fact, personal belief was dangerous, not only to you, but the entire community. Because if someone decided to walk away, it actually could threaten the whole community. They wonder what is going to be unleashed on them because of the unbelief coming now into their community. Now, us, we think of this and we're like, wow, that's different. But I just want you to know, that is way closer to how Paul saw the world. That is way closer to how Jesus saw the world. When we go on a walk, almost certainly we are not feeling like we're on this dangerous adventure. Why? Because we are the meaning maker of everything. Right? We are the ones who decides what is significant. We are the ones who decide what is meaningful. Right? It's more like the arrows are like this. God is simply then a choice that I get to decide about that has zero consequence in life or in the world. Are you following with me? Charles Taylor calls this the age of authenticity. We say to ourselves, you know, I have to discover my own route to wholeness, to depth, to spirituality. Right? There's this sense of self that is distinct from the world. That is me. That did not exist when Jesus walked the earth. Everything was interconnected. So we think to ourselves, oh, if I don't believe this or believe that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect anyone else. I can feel free to think and feel and do as I wish. Now, I realize this is a little philosophical, and some of you are like, oh my gosh, is the whole sermon going to be like this? Let me just tell you a story applied. One night, we had some folks over for dinner, and someone asked me at the table, this is a collection of folks that are inside and outside the church, kind of a mixed group, and I started sharing, they're like, oh, how's stuff going at Wellspring? I was like, oh, it's awesome. This is happening, and this is happening. And in the midst of me sharing the good stuff that was happening, someone just interrupts me and says, just don't tell me what to believe. I hate that. I wasn't even talking to this person. I was not saying anything about what he or she should believe. But it was like there was this immediate and powerful allergic reaction the mere fact that I had belief led to defensiveness, right? This focus on authenticity and you better not tell me. I am the one who decides. Now, I'm sort of doing this brief historical tour uh, for a reason. I think it's important for us to realize that 500 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago, our self-perception over time has changed radically from vulnerable beings that needed God in a dangerous world to kind of self-sufficient human beings whose primary goal is to live authentic lives shaped by our preferences. 
You have to imagine, right, this profoundly shapes our life with God and our experience of community, right? It means that we come to church thinking that our authentic expression, our preferences, are often primary, even if we would never say it overtly, because we are shaped in a cultural context that tells us every single day. You make your own meaning and significance in the world. And to violate that is the worst thing you can possibly do. Now again, I'm not against personal preferences. I'm not against authentic expression. Those can be really important parts of human life. But when they become the ultimate thing, they become the thing that we worship, really bad things happen. When we turn back to the story of Jesus, it's core, right? For him, that authentic expression, our preferences, is not the core of discipleship or apprenticeship, right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, fishermen, you do you. I'm going to be over here. He says, follow me. Now, there's lots of stories and texts we could get into. Uh, I want to start, actually, in the eighth chapter of Mark's gospel. Um, Jesus has already called his disciples. He's walked with them a bit. All of them have left their current occupations and their life circumstances to follow Jesus, both spiritually and literally. Now, before Jesus goes to Jerusalem, before he is going to literally be crucified and tortured, he tells his disciples, hey guys, when I go here, I'm, I'm going to be killed. And I think if any of us were there, we wouldn't like that either. Right? Like, let's be honest. We want to hang out with Jesus. Peter in particular, he's the vocalizer in the group. He, he really doesn't like it. And it certainly isn't his preference for Jesus to go die on a cross. The text says in Mark 8.32 that Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him. Dude, what are you, what are you saying? We're going to stand by your side, Jesus. You're going to be king. It's going to be epic. This is not what's going to happen, Jesus. And then Jesus has one of the more startling comments, I think, in the New Testament. He says this. But turning and seeing his disciples, watching Peter rebuke him, he says this. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. Hasatan in Hebrew is the adversary. So he's essentially saying to Peter, Peter, you are behaving like Satan right now. You are opposing the kingdom of God in the world. You're elevating your preferences over God's plan. Get behind me. Back to follow me, Peter. I am not following your desire or preferences. Peter, you're focused on your things, not my things. 
Peter's preference is that Jesus doesn't suffer a good thing. But it's actually his focus on a good thing that makes him the adversary of Jesus. So that he is ha-sataning, he is sataning Jesus in this moment. He just wanted good things. You go back to the bulldozer analogy. It's kind of like you hand God the keys to the bulldozer and you're like, oh man, he's serious. He's going to like rip up the ground. And you're like, hey, hey, stop. Hey, hey, here's a weed whacker. I think this will work just fine. And after he tells Peter to get behind him, to follow him, he says this to the crowds to clarify further. He says this, if anyone would come after me, he will deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He's like, hey all, this is how it works. If you want to follow me, you've got to set aside your preferences for how this is all going to go. Your dream vision of your life, this church, this community. In fact, if you try and save your life, you try and focus on you and what you want, what you prefer, you will totally miss it. It's only in setting aside your preferences and living open-handed before God that you find life. Do you have verses um, like you remember the first time you ever heard them? I remember so clearly the first time I heard this verse. Many of you know, right, I, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't really grow up reading a Bible. Um, but when I came to college, I, like half my football team that I played with, like were Christians and studied the scriptures. Totally weird. Anyway, I was like, they're like, hey, you want to study this with me? I was like, sure. Can I be big and ripped like you? Um, so I would go. And in the summer, there was like week-long study through uh, the, like the third, the second third of the Gospel of Mark. I didn't know what I was getting into, but I was like, I'll go, you know. Up at Lake Arrowhead, I was down in Southern California, and we're about three days into this. And I remember sitting down at a table of, you know, 10 or 12 people, and I read this verse. Everyone else is like doing their little study and making little marks. And I literally, I could not get past it. And I just stood up and I left the room. Because I realized in that moment that I was losing my soul. I was losing my very self. I was trying to chart this course in my life that had very little to do with God. It was all about me bolstering up my resume self and my worth in front of others so that they would think I was awesome. And in this moment, I realized if I wanted to live life, if I wanted to not lose everything I was, 
the only way to do it was to just fall on my face in the woods with Jesus. I remember that moment so clearly. Because as soon as I just like rolled in the ground weeping, right? I probably came back with like pine needles in my hair or whatever. It was the first time I had ever experienced that kind of life. This profound acceptance. This profound sense that I was so broken and Jesus was there and he's like, I am with you forever. Yeah, Tony, I see all the stuff you've done. I see how you live. Let go. And I promise you life. I remember I walked back in. I remember we had this like worship space and it was the first time I ever worshiped God because I knew beyond anything in my mind that Jesus was where all my life was going to be found. I think sometimes we read this verse and we think, oh, I'm going to have to deny myself. Oh, it's going to be horrible. That is Satan telling you that. Jesus says, if we die, if we live open-handed, what happens? We get life. When that original group of people were here and they were offered, right, the bulldozer analogy. If you went to ask them now, none of them are going to say, you know what, I wish I hadn't done it. You know how many times that first two years I saw people in that group weeping in these very pews because they saw God resurrecting this place. When we lose life, we gain it. Not because we, you know, hacked the good life, but because the Spirit of God brings life to us. Jesus says he comes to give abundant life to to us, but he doesn't do it while we keep him on the side. He does it when he is in the center, when we toss out our plans, our visions, and say, here I am, Lord. It's when we do that that the fruits of the Spirit began to blossom in our life. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You want peace? Live open-handed with Jesus. You want joy? Let go of control. In our culture, though, we're told the exact opposite. We're told, hey, chart your values, come up with what you most care about, and rock it. What Jesus says is, hey, we all have visions for our life. Are you willing to accept my vision for your life? I promise you it's going to be way better than anything you could imagine. But you do need to set aside your preferences. In our culture, 
right? We're told to pay attention to our preferences. Jesus says, it's okay to have preferences, but let's put mine first. In Genesis 2, right, like we're almost like reenacting Genesis 2 and 3 here, right? So it's this idea of God creates a place of abundance, and he says, hey, there's a tree here of the knowledge of good and evil, of tov and raw, of good and bad. Like, hey, just don't eat that, but I'll give you everything else. You're going to be able to eat from every tree. You're going to have everything you need. And then this little snake comes in and is like, hey, just so you know, if you eat from this tree, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be wise. And he reframes God's generosity in terms of restriction. You're just not able to do this. And we are faced with a similar question today. Will we trust God that he will give us abundance? Even if he tells us, hey, don't do this and this and this. In a culture that worship individual preference, right? At Wellspring, we want to be a people who live open-handed before Jesus. Which then brings me to sort of point number two. In a culture that reacts to and defends against the other, we want to be a people who listen to understand and welcome. It's actually kind of ironic, right? So we live in this culture that honors authentic expression over almost anything and simultaneously reacts to and defends against the other, that person who is different, who has different authentic expression than we do. Right? The other becomes now a personal threat to one's own belief, emotional reality, and experience. Right? You see this in our culture everywhere. Go on social media, go online, and just pay attention to any conversation about politics, race, gender, sexuality, let alone masks. Right? Everywhere we go, people are opposing each other. It's interesting as a pastor and someone who sees clients in, in therapy, I have this common experience. You know, I see all these people with very different opinions, very different convictions about the good life, Right? And this, this experience literally repeats all the time where I meet with someone and I listen to them. I ask them questions. And very quickly they assume that I agree with them. And they start to think, oh yeah, this person agrees with me. Now I can start just blasting these other people because this person agrees with me. And they literally start talking about how stupid anyone could be that disagrees with them. And it's this really interesting thing, this window I get. Because, right, I see all these different people. And it's like, if you just listen to them, they assume that you're in their echo chamber and that you must agree with everything they say. It's because, right, most of us, with some of these issues, we only talk to people that agree with us. And what do they do? They listen. They ask questions. And then everyone that disagrees with them reacts to them and gets upset. This is especially true, right, if you're 
online, social media. That's true in everyday life and families, but in social media, right, this is this can be called like a call-out culture. Have you ever heard of this? Right, in call-out culture, according to uh, Lukanoff and Haight and the Coddling of the American Mind, they write this, one gets no points, no credit, for speaking privately and gently with an offender. In fact, that could be interpreted as colluding with the enemy. Right, you need to call people out. And this is further combined with this phenomenon called virtue signaling, in which, again, they refer to as uh, refer to the things people say and do to advertise that they are virtuous, right? And this helps them stay within the good graces of the team. But what it also does, when we sort of live in this call-out culture and virtue signaling, is it often blinds us to arguments and information that might challenge our team or tribe's narrative, Right? When you exist in an echo chamber, you never get exposed to the other's opinion or thoughts. A few stories. I literally met with someone a couple weeks ago who said they were at a church recently. You know, recently moved to the area and we're at a church and uh, someone came on stage to like share a little bit. This is not a paid staff. This is just someone who's coming on the stage to share something of their convictions, testimony kind of thing. And word got out that this person happened to vote Democrat. And what happened is someone said, how dare you have a Democrat on the stage? Left the church, left the church, you know, upset and mad. How dare you? Now, you might think that's weird. You might be like, what is going on? Where were they attending church, you know? But I've also, personally, in a more sort of left-leaning cultural environment, over the last four years, five years since I've been here, I have literally had people more on the left side tell me, hey, if you don't speak out against this very topic, are you even really a Christian I've literally seen on the back end little social media things of like, if your pastor doesn't speak out on this, put them on blast in social media. Welcome to our cultural moment. What I find interesting is that when we actually go back to Jesus' example, it's so profoundly different. Right? When God took on human flesh, he literally could have formed a community of anyone he wanted. Literally, this is God. He gets first pick. Right? Anyone, the best, the brightest in the world. Let me tell you some of his first draft picks. You have Peter, who acts before he thinks. You have Thomas, who doubts before he acts. You have James and John, who are called the sons of thunder, who seek their own self-promotion. They get their mom involved and are like, hey, convince Jesus that we can be at his right and left when we come into glory. He picks Judas, who he knows is going to betray him for money. 
One of the more fascinating pairs is Matthew, the tax collector, who essentially colludes with Rome, betrays the Jewish people, and on top of it gets all kinds of money because he overcharges people that are already poor. Now imagine him sitting over a fire at night with Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot would have been like an ancient day, according to Rome, terrorist who was willing to do any kind of violence in order to upset Roman domination. Imagine that conversation. Matthew and Simon at the table. What's so clear is that Jesus formed a people of difference. Right outside this small group, he had all these women that he spent a tons of time with. And he spent time with sinners and people who weren't often welcome at the table. And we know this, right? Because the stories are in the Gospels and you hear the Pharisees who are like the religious leaders being like, dude, why are you eating with these people? Why are you spending time with these people? You're wasting your time. What's so clear is that Jesus formed a community of others. And then he taught them to love each other. Right? When Jesus is asked the core commitments of a disciple, what does he say? Love God, love your neighbor. That's easy. I think some of us are like, oh, I love the world. I love people. That's fine. Love the person sitting next to you. That's a lot harder, right? He says, love your neighbor, and Simon and Matthew are looking at each other like, oh, man, him? Right? When Jesus talks about enemy love, they're looking at each other being like, holy smokes, I have to love this person? It's not an abstract idea. It's an embodied personal reality. We're called to love people that are different than us. It's interesting, as the church forms, right, the early church follows Jesus' example. Scott McKnight has this great quote, right, because there's Jesus, the early church is forming all these communities with people with different walks of life, ideological assumptions, political convictions, right, social groups. And with this in mind, McKnight writes in Fellowship of Difference, The church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing unlikes and difference to the table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. When this happens, we show the world what love, justice, peace, reconciliation, and life together are designed by God to be. Right, The church is God's show and tell for the world to see how God wants us to live as a family. Right, God wants the world to see the church and say, wow, that is who God is all about. A group of people that would never hang out together, a group of people that aren't a social club, a group of people that are united in Jesus, by his cross, first and foremost. Everything else is secondary. 
Right? In the book of Revelation, you have this picture of every tribe, every nation, every people group coming together to worship Jesus. That's the end, and what he wants in this season is for us to anticipate that reality by loving and welcoming in people that are different than us. Right? Jesus says that is part of our witness in the world. The world will see our love for one another and be like, wow, that is the God that you worship. Right, it's as this new family of unlikes and difference, right, invited to love one another, right, the early church says that we're supposed to be hospitable with one another. Right, Paul tells the Roman church to practice hospitality. Peter tells the churches he's overseeing, be hospitable with one another without complaint. Right, and this word is phylogenia in Greek, right? Philo is to love. Genia is the outsider or the stranger, right? It's in contrast with xenophobia, fear of the other or stranger, right? We live in a cultural moment where we fear the one who is different than us. So we attack them. We are defended against them. Jesus says, the early church says, hey, no, 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 we're different. We want to host and welcome them. I was uh, meeting with someone the uh, last few weeks who actually started a foundation called Faith First. And this person, the foundation is all about trying to bring churches divided, right, often by race, socioeconomic status, politics, actually into relationship, right? Because so often churches are some of the most segregated places on earth, and that's not okay. That grieves the Holy Spirit. That grieves God. We'll just let it go to voicemail. No stress. <laughs> Everyone, just let your phone ring so that way no one knows. Persistent. Um, there we go. <laughs> I like that prayer. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. So I was meeting with this person who started a foundation called Faith First, and this whole thing was, you know, in this cultural moment, churches are so divided by politics, by race, by socioeconomic status. What if, what if we created a way to get churches in relationship with one another that wouldn't otherwise connect? And what if we then brought them into relationship and then actually created spaces for them to serve the world together so the world would see, oh, look at the church that's different. And as I was talking to that person, they were just like, you know, I just want us as a body to put faith in Jesus first so that the church is united under Jesus. We're not divided by our preferences. We're not divided by all of our differences. But we're united by Jesus and what he did in his life on the cross and through his resurrection. The culture that reacts to and defends against the other, we're invited to be a people who listen to one another. 
and welcome each other. I want to share just uh, one last story before we end. Um, in 2014, if you grew up around here, you know that the Seahawks and the 49ers played in the NFC Championship game, and after that, there was massive fallout, right? Probably globally. Uh, the 49ers lost. Richard Sherman went off. It was like the height of sports conflict. Anyone remember that? A couple of us cheaters. Thank you. I knew it. So imagine the tension thick. I moved up to Washington. And I remember going to Washington thinking, there's probably just sports fans just like me. I was wrong. Every house had a flag. Every car had a bumper sticker. On Friday, they have a thing called Blue Friday. And if you don't wear blue, you're like a social pariah. If you wear red, you're mugged. No, just kidding. Now, I share this story mostly because I felt really uncomfortable. I'm like, I didn't, was I really going to be hurt? No. But I'll tell you, I felt uncomfortable as a 49er fan going up there. And I realized this is like the dumbest example, but it proves my point. Sometimes we do things in community that unintentionally exclude other people. And we don't even know we're doing it. I'm like a pretty outspoken person. I didn't tell anyone for six months that I was a 49er fan. <laughs> now imagine you come into a church and you have a real issue that separates you, that makes you feel outside. I didn't talk about being a 49er fan for six months. Imagine how someone comes into this building and feels like, am I welcome here? Friends, we need to be the kind of people that intentionally welcome people in. We cannot assume that people will just feel welcomed. I thought maybe just really practically, one way we could sort of lean into this is just do a little bit of an inventory in ourselves. Um, I uh, wrote it up here. Um, see if I can flip this without knocking anything else over. There we go. But what I'd like us to do this week is evaluate four areas of our life our family, our work, our friendships, and our church community. And I would like us to evaluate ourselves from one to five. You know, maybe it's in your family, when it comes to your preferences. Where do you rank yourself from one to five? Are you willing to live open-handed with Jesus, with your family, or you're like, man, this is where we're going, Jesus. You better get on board. We laugh. What about at work? 
How open are you to the Holy Spirit doing something different than you planned that day? My doubt is, I doubt he's going to get you fired. But are you open? Is your hands open? Then what about with your friends? Your friend group? Are you out as a Christian? Do people even know you go to church on Sunday morning? Do they know why? Right? One to five. And then at church. When you come here, are you open-handed or are you like, Jesus, this is what I do as a Christian? What if you did just a little inventory? And I would say, if you're a one or a two, that would be really concerning. I would say, if you evaluate yourself as a one or a two in any of these categories, I would say, prime opportunity for repentance. Right? If you're a three to five, I would say, great. Maybe just say, what is one step you can make in those areas to be open? Maybe it's simply a prayer saying, all right, Jesus, I'm open. Help me to be more open. And then also, with welcoming the other in your family, do you welcome people that are different than you? that thinks different things, that are of different ethnic or racial backgrounds into your family and into your home? What about at work? What do you do with the person who really annoys you? How do you relate to that person? In your friends, in your friend group, are you always trying to protect against the weird person who wants to hang out with you? Or are you open to other people spending time in your little friend group? In the church, in this space, are you the kind of person who is welcoming in people that think different than you, that act different than you, maybe approach life different than you? And again, I would say, if you give yourself a one or a two on this, time to turn back to Jesus and his approach to life and the kingdom. If you get a three or five, three to five, like, well done. You're on track. That doesn't mean that your growth and transformation is over. And I get you probably can't process this all right now, but I would invite you, take a morning, pray about this. Essentially, I have eight categories. Sit with Jesus, sit with the Holy Spirit, see what he says to you. What does it look like in your family, your workplace, among your friends? You know, in workplace, also have that be slash sort of classroom, right, if you're a student. Family, work, friends, and church. Our friends, I would also include social media. So when you're talking about friends, right, as a place of connection, how are you behaving online? Make sense? I want to take just a moment uh, as we shift towards worship. I want to invite the worship team up. Um,